0: Only Truman is unaware that everyone is watching. And as the plot proceeds, Truman becomes increasingly conscious that something is wrong, that his idyllic life in this small, idyllic world he inhabits on an island is one giant voyeuristic delusion for the masses. It's interesting as the film proceeds that it shifts back and forth from Truman's life to the life of the audience, everyday people, little old ladies and cops and city dwellers meeting in bars who cannot take their eyes off of Truman's life, how it's gonna unfold, what's gonna happen, especially as he begins to figure out something's going on. They're watching him around the clock. Now the point that was being made way back in 1998 was what if we lived like this? What if we lived to voyeuristically watch people live out their lives on TV rather than living life ourselves? It seemed really bizarre and far-fetched back then. It actually got an Oscar nomination. But it was just a few years later that reality TV emerged with shows like Big Brother and Survivor and American Idol, and now today there are over 700 reality shows on the television, reality TV shows. You can watch celebrities learn to dance, cook, crochet, you name it. You can watch families whose spending has spiraled out of control, and they're learning to fix their broken finances. You can watch families whose children are overweight learn how to eat healthily, You can see what it's like for wives to be swapped. Now think about that. A few days with somebody else's family. A few days with a different mom in your home. What in the world? You can watch shows about real housewives of wherever. Real mob bosses' wives, I think, is another, right? And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. But it hasn't stopped with reality TV, has it? Next came the emergence of social media, right? Beginning a little over 10 years ago, a little bit more if you were a college student back then. First with Facebook and the explosion of connectedness through social media so that now everyone has at least one platform for social connection, social media and many of us have many platforms for our social media so that we can, quote, stay connected so that we can, quote, stay in touch, so that we can keep up to date or to simply be entertained. And what's amazing is that what is emerging, it has emerged and I think it is continuing to emerge, is an increasingly anxious and addicted and lonely and discontented culture. As we're going through this Lenten preaching series called Death to Selfie, we're looking at issues that are going on in our culture, not so that we point a finger and go, that's bad, look at those people, but so that we might give the Spirit of God space in our own lives to show us those places that he's asking us to make a little more room for him, so that by the time you and I get to Easter, having responded to the Spirit through the word, we might have a renewal in our hearts as individuals and as a community. And so today, I want to speak about voyeurism, not the clinical version, which is specifically sexual in nature, but a kind of broader voyeurism that is going on in our culture, a functional voyeurism, if you will, in which we derive pleasure, we derive meaning from looking in on other people's lives. We get entertainment from looking in on other people's lives. We find satisfaction for ourselves by looking in on other people's lives. Now, I want to start by saying this is not a message where I'm just simply down on social media or reality TV. Don't don't check out. That would be way too simplistic, wouldn't it? That's bad. Don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. That may be an answer that you come to at some point, but that would be too simplistic. The question is this, What is it that causes so many of us to want to see the sad, pathetic, tragic details of other people's lives and personalities and bodies? What is it that causes you and me to want to see the sad details, the tragic aspects of other people's lives, relationships, bodies, brokenness, psychology? What is it that drives us What is it within us that drives a medium like YouTube, which combines almost perfectly exhibitionism and voyeurism together in neatly packaged segments, so that now car accidents become entertainment, and girlfriend fails become amusing. The lives, y'all, the lives of other people's cats. Now, some of y'all know what I'm talking about because you spend a lot of time looking at the lives of other people's cats, right? That, That becomes engaging. Beatings become amusement. Even the deaths of American soldiers have become entertainment. As videos of their deaths or their beheadings make the rounds around the internet being passed on here and there, there's this whole dynamic that is going on. And then there's all the blogs where we pour out all of our personal problems, often in great detail, for the world to see. And many of us gobble that up, enticed and wondering and interested. We fill up our pages with only the best pictures of our lives, so they'll be jealous, or at least they'll see how great our family vacation to such a beautiful place was when we were all smiling. Never mind five minutes before when everybody was screaming at each other, right? Right? And of course, there is this all-pervasive issue of pornography. Millions and millions and millions of people every day engage in a kind of addicted fantasy through watching pornography. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying lives. What is it that drives our voyeurism? It wants to see other people's lives Often, in the process, while losing our own, and that's what happens is we tend to get numbed out to our own hearts and our own needs and our true desires. What is that? Well, I, I think there are a number of issues. I, I think it would be uh, it, it's very complex, and so i'm going to kind of target one issue that I think is applicable in many cases. What is it that drives this kind of voyeuristic tendency? I think one of the issues is the issue of lust. You know, don't tune out. Oh, this is about sex. Well, lust has sexual overtones to it, particularly for men, but increasingly that's changing culturally as pornography targets women, as our culture uh, of voyeuristic tendencies is now marketing to you ladies as well. What is it though? It's What is this lust thing that is sexually oriented on some cases, but isn't always? There's more to it than that. Lust is a strong desire for something, often something good. The desire for something good is a godly and innate desire. But lust is a strong desire to take something, to have something, to covet something. It's a craving, a motivation to want for yourself, something that is not yours, through either your eyes or by your passions. And there's nothing new about it. None of these issues we've been looking at in Lent are new, by the way. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new to the corruption of the human heart. There are just new ways to express it. This issue goes all the way back to the garden. Remember Genesis chapter 3, 6. Listen to these words. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Notice it's good, it, it, it's pleasant, and it's to be desired. She took, and she ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate it too. Now, she didn't notice it with a glance, by the way. There was no casual glance. There's no, oops, going on here, she took a good long look. First, her eyes saw it, and instead of turning away, instead of turning back to that which was made to satisfy her heart, namely the Lord, and her husband, and this place that they were living in, she kept focused on it. She kept looking at it. She kept seeing it, and she began to want it. She began to desire it because of what it could do for her Remember something I heard Billy Graham say. He said, y'all, the first look is free. It's the second look that kills you. Martin Luther said, it's not wrong for a bird to fly over your head. Just don't let it build a nest in your hair. The point being that the longer we look, the longer we yearn, the longer we desire, the more likely we are to take hold of that which is not ours. And so, Lust moves from simple temptation. Voyeurism moves from a simple looking to a sin of the heart that moves into action. Think about David, look at your Old Testament lesson there in Second Samuel chapter 11. Just gonna look at a few of the verses. In the spring of the year, verse one, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. First problem, David was not living from his identity as the king. He forgot who he was. He stayed home when he should have been out in the battle. And that is so often the start of any sin issue that goes on, of anything, is we forget who we are. David remained at home in Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and then verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. It wasn't wrong for David to see her, but because he had forgotten his identity, because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, he was open to seeing something that led his heart to want her. It does say she was very beautiful, The the scriptures are interesting because that word very is not used all that often. So she was really, 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 really pretty. It was something lovely about her. But somewhere in there, between verse 2 and verse 3, lust springs up in David's heart. I see it, I want it, I'll take it. I see it, I want it, I'll take it. And so he sends and inquires and then he takes And y'all, it leads to years of sorrow and years of brokenness in her life, in his life, in the life of his family, in the life of those around him. It's real bad off for Uriah, her husband, who ends up dead over the whole issue. His relationship with God crumbles along the way for a season. I think it was already crumbling, but I think it finds sort of a a pinnacle in this. It starts with the eyes. It starts with an intense looking and an intense longing. Now, this isn't just the sexual side of lust. This can be through your internet, through your Facebook. I want what they have. It doesn't have to be like online. You can want your neighbor's house desperately. You could be looking around right now around you and say, look at the size of her rock. Wish I had one of those a longing in our hearts that, it, that comes first out of the eyes, it moves to the mind, and then the mind somehow disappears along the way. It overcomes our reason and eventually becomes action. Listen to the words of First John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What is this lust of the eyes? What is it that, that the Scripture is talking about here? Well, it's, it's what I've been saying, right? It's, it's this desire to possess, to get, to see, even to have that which is not ours, that have visual appeal, that look pretty good, that make us want something. It can be money, it could be possessions, it could be some guy's boat you see. It can have any form, it can have any object, but the scripture emphasizes it's of the world and it's going to pass away which is why it can't ultimately satisfy the deepest needs and desires of your heart. It wasn't made to. It's a cheap corruption. But it's so powerful and so all-pervasive, this lust of the eyes, that, that Satan even used it against Jesus in the garden, or excuse me, in the wilderness, right? As he's tempting Jesus to try to get him off the path from becoming the Messiah, from following the Father's will the second temptation that he gives him, it says this in Matthew 4, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And then he promised to give them to Jesus. And the price, of course, was just bow down and worship me, kneel before me, and it's all going to be yours. It was a good thing. It was actually the thing Jesus came for was the world and its kingdoms and all the people in it. He just came for it in a different way than the way of grabbing for self, of avoiding suffering. He came to walk the way of the cross. He came to walk a way of death leading to life, not of stealing life in some other way. What do you do about this? Because I suspect, if, if we're honest, somewhere in this message, something is is. is is tapping. Because you've thought about how discontented you end up when maybe you're looking at somebody's Facebook, you're scrolling through the Twitter feed, you know, you find yourself not built up, but torn down, wanting or feeling less than, desiring what someone else has, wondering in self-pity, why can't I have that? Certainly in this room, Probably half of the people in here looked at pornography this week. Oh, no, no, really. That's the statistics. What do you do? Because it's everywhere, all around. I don't think the answer is flee the internet. That's probably not it. You probably need to get your emails from work. So, So don't touch usually doesn't work, at least not for long. Why? Because the law always evokes our flesh to do the very thing we don't want to do. The law is wonderful in showing us our need for a savior, right? You may need to get off the internet for a season, but that can't be the end in itself. You've got to have something more. Instead of the counterfeit, what we need so desperately is what our hearts were made for. In 1 John 2, where it says, the love of the world and talks about the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, it's actually put up against, and at war with, the love of the Father. See, the answer, the answer that we desperately need, the answer that you need, and that I need, is the deep love of the Father for our hearts and our lives. You need to know, I don't mean here. I mean, deeply in your being, the love of the Father, not in some abstract theological sense, but personally, experientially, in your heart, and not on your good days, but on the days in which you show up here thinking, I don't know if I should be in the room, the days when you need grace more than anything else, think about the primary picture that Jesus gave us of who the Father is, Luke chapter 15. When the younger son goes running off and wasting his life and blowing his inheritance, he first comes to his senses, and that's always the first step, is recognizing, oh, he's not talking about that person over there. I am the one with the issue. And he begins to come to his senses. He sees where he's living. It's interesting that there's these overtones of his eyes and his mind and his heart all coming into an alignment to recognize, oh my God, I'm living among pigs. Oh my God, this isn't just some little wink-wink issue. This thing is drawing my heart so far away from my homeland, from my country, from my father's heart. And it's at that point... When we recognize, when you see where you are, that by God's grace and by the power of his spirit who is after you, in the very best of ways, he seeks to draw your face up and back toward home, to your father's house. Or even the servants have plenty of bread to eat. You no longer have to fill yourself with the pods of the pigs. And you start that repenting process Repentance is just, I'm turning back toward home. Because what happens when he gets there? He's not all cleaned up. He's not all fixed up. He's half naked. He's broke. He's looking terrible. He smells like pigs. And he receives a father running down the road who's been looking for him from a long distance off. The father sees and goes plunging through town, not caring who sees taking on the shame and embarrassment himself, grabbing that son in his arms, not to beat him, but to hold him. the plant kisses on his face, weeping. He doesn't scold him or shame him. He throws a robe around him. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet. He draws him back to his identity. As a servant? No, as daddy's child. That's who you are. That's what will satisfy the heart that wants to run off to other things. Get captivated by the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. He throws his arms around you. Do you know this love? Because this is what Jesus came to reveal to you. He came to reveal... The true God. And He makes it possible for us to know this God in real time, real life, experientially, because of His death, because of His resurrection, because His spirit is here even now. That's the presence you sense around you, even now. It's that sort of heavy feeling in the room that isn't condemnation, It's His presence. You just turn your heart and say, "Yes, teach me." Reveal to me. I come back to love. That's the only thing that will satisfy you. that's the only thing that was ever designed to satisfy you. Do you know the love of this Father? And if you do, oh, ask for more. It never grows less. He never says, well, one too many times. Doesn't work that way. Come to your Father's heart. All right, let's pause. Let's close our eyes. And I just invite you to allow the Spirit to surface up the places where you've found your eyes running off, where you've seen discontentment set in because of what you've seen that others have and you don't have, or what they project and you wish was yours, and where your eyes have gone to images of bodies that aren't yours to have. In all the dimensions of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, Lord, would you just let it come so that we can bring it to the cross. It is for freedom, Lord Jesus Christ, that you set us free. And so as we turn to you now, as we bring this, we just want to lift it before the cross, acknowledging that, yes, we've engaged. Yes, we've fallen prey. Yes, we've run into it. And we say, Abba, I belong to you. Would you set me free and fill me with your love? Pray, Lord, that this would begin at the bottom of our toes and go all the way to the top of our heads. We ask this, Lord, in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.